Hi, everybody. This is Blaine DeSantis, and welcome to another edition of Books and Looks. That's right, folks. Thanks for coming back when I'm going to talk about a book I'm reading and something I'm looking at. That's right. Wow, I had to miss an episode, and I missed chatting with you, and I hope you missed hearing my voice and learning about some new books. The year of discovery continues here. That's right, looking at new books, new authors, and we've got a great interview for you with an author you might not have heard of before. That's coming up today. And also, I'll tell you what, I've got a new book for you that I really like, and I really hope that you uh, take to your heart because this is a funny book. It's a dark comedy book. That's right. The first thing we're going to talk about today is the book Just Desserts. Just Desserts by an author named Jerry Crowther, C-R-O-W-T-H-E-R. Now, this is a new book from a a new author over in England. That's right. It's around 200 pages uh, in length. It comes from the Book Guild Limited. And this is a funny story. Now, when I say the Just Desserts, we're not talking about the edible sort of desserts. No, no. We're talking about when a person does something wrong, they get their punishment or they get their just desserts. That's right. Ah, I'm going to tell you why. I am a fan of British humor. I have been my entire life. Were you like me? Did you grow up on Faulty Towers? How about some of those other classics? You know, like Are You Being Served, To the Manor Born, Keeping Up Appearances. I love the humor. I love British humor, and this book, from page one, started to tickle my fancy, because this is a book about two people. Their name are Derek and Sandra Tile. Now, obviously, this is a, 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 a fiction book, okay, but these people think that they are the people who determine all sorts of social mores and all sorts of things that should be done or shouldn't be done, and it begins in the very first chapter as they are cruising up and down a parking lot. Okay, at a grocery store, and they see people parked what they consider to be improperly. Now, you know what that's like. You see how people park on slants, or sometimes they take up two spots, or they don't go in far enough. Okay, does it bother you? Well, it bugs these people. And so, what they do is they have with them little yellow stickers that they put on people's cars, telling them to prop parker properly to park properly, or the next time they're going to be towed away. Now, these people have no authority to tow them away, but just the mere thought that they've put something on a car gives them like a, well, that person who comes to the car thinks, oh my God, the police are here. And improper parking has been down 12% in the month that they've been doing this. They're very proud of themselves. They go into the grocery store and there's a lady on the phone who was in the phone, talking all the time, very loud, disrupting everybody, and ended up crashing the, her cart into their cart, and then bitching about how, what they were shopping for, etc. Trust me, she got her just desserts. <laughs> These people are funny. They initialize everything. Like, let's say you have a dog walking society. They call it the, the DWS, okay? Everything's initialized. They are, as I said, in their little block, they've got all these homeowners together and they're in charge of meetings. They refer to each other as chairman or secretary. Everything they do is decided like in a motion form, even when they're by themselves. Yeah, the chairman says this, the secretary reports that. It's just hilarious. It is funny, funny, funny. And it's just typical British humor. 
even when you get to the very last chapter where something happens. But, you know, it's humorously done, okay? The other thing that I love about this book is that these are almost like vignettes. You know, so I, I can read chapter one. Let me put it down a minute. That's okay, because chapter two is almost its own separate incident. And what happens is by the end of chapter two, they may have done something or whatever chapter you're reading, they may have done something which looks like it may have caused a problem, but by the end, ah, ah, something good always happens. So it's a really funny book. I really, really enjoy it. I'm going to be reviewing it on my website, viewsonbooks.com. So that's going to be coming out. I think you're going to really like this book by Jerry Crowther, who will be on in the future with regard to uh, an interview on his uh, book and uh, British humor and, and all those things, which I think I'm going to really enjoy. And uh, so I think you're going to like that a whole heck of a lot. Again, Just Desserts by Jerry Crowther. Now, I've got an interview coming up next with a gentleman by the name of James A. Scott, who wrote the book, The Blood of Patriots and Traitors. But before I get into that, let me just say this. I, I really appreciate all of you following me and listening and sharing, because I'm going to tell you what, our numbers have really bumped up, really, really, really gone through the roof the last few weeks. And I really appreciate it. Part of it's because of we got people sharing. Part of it's because we have great authors and interviews. Like I said, part of it's you. You know, you people are taking it to heart. You're enjoying it and you're passing it on to others. I can't ask for any more. So before we go any further, let me get right into my interview with James A. Scott about his new book, The Blood of Patriots and Traitors. Scotty, thanks for joining us on Books and Looks. Thank you for having me, Blaine. Happy to be here. Well, now, before we get into the book per se, could you give us a little bit about your uh, background? You go to college, did you take any writing classes? Uh, what was your background? Well, uh, I was an artist, uh, an art major in uh, high school, and I had a four-year break before I went to college, didn't have any money. But I uh, didn't want to be a starving artist, so when I got to college, I studied engineering long enough to find out I did not like it. <laughs> and so I became a history major, but in effect, I was really an ROTC major. I wanted to be uh, an officer in the Army and see the world. And uh, since I had been an enlisted soldier, I was really looking forward to that, and that ended up being my destiny. I never took a writing course until very late, late in my life, and I will tell you, about that uh, when you get to some of the other questions. Oh, okay. You oh, that's that's very interesting. Very interesting. Wonderful. Yeah, I sort of like to joke that uh, they wouldn't even let me in the science building uh, when I was in college. I was so I loved it, but I, I wasn't <laughs> cut out to be a scientist. So uh, they said you stay away. So I did. Anyway. Well, it's good to know those things early, you yeah. know, so you don't waste your life. You're right. I found that out awfully early. I thought I was pretty smart when I got to school. <laughs> Not the exact opposite when I was there. <laughs> Anyway, hey, what made you become the writer? Do you have any books or authors that may have inspired you? Well, um, I spent uh, between uh, high school and college, I spent a fortune on uh, Book of the Month Club books and reading everything, uh, all all kinds of subjects from mythology. But I think my favorite was uh, World War II because uh, I wanted to understand how the world that I how the world that I was living in got to be what it was. And uh, in the course of doing that reading, I ran across Winston Churchill, and he wrote a five-volume set on World War II that I found absolutely fascinating, and uh, the vocabulary was absolutely uh, wonderful to uh, expand mine. I used to read his books with um, 
with his volume in one hand and my dictionary in the other so I could understand what he was saying. Hey, isn't but, that uh, nice so about Kindle now? You With your Kindle, you just push that button on that word, and it pops up what the definition is. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, we didn't have it in those days. You had to do it the hard way, as you know. I know. I know. Well, yeah, that's interesting. But but now you, you, you got into this action thriller genre. Was there a, a writer there who you uh, really liked or, or who, who, who tickled Elton your fancy? Elton uh, caught my eye very early, and uh, I read almost all of his books, but I'm keeping a few in reserve. So when I hit a, hit a dry patch, I can go find a good book. I do the same thing with my favorite authors. I don't like to uh, read all their books at one time. i got to have a few left over. I, I like... Uh, a lady by the name of Donna Leone, who writes uh, Italian mysteries set over in Venice. I like her book. She's written 32 of them, but I'm holding the last 15 for when I when I hit that dry spot. So I know what you're talking about. Now, the, 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 you lived, from what I'm told, you lived over in Europe for 20 years. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, actually a little bit more than 20, but um, I spent uh, six of those years as a soldier. I had two different uh, three-year assignment, uh, three assignments over there. And then um, I retired there, actually, because my wife uh, was an administrator in the Department of Defense schools over there. That uh, You know, they taught um, children of um, military and uh, some uh, DA civilians and DOD civilians. So uh, I retired in 88. She didn't retire until 2001. And uh, she had the wanderlust just like I did. And we used to travel every weekend, every holiday, every summer. Uh, every chance we got, so we saw a lot of Europe, and uh, loved it. Yeah, because I noticed you have a a pretty good knowledge, uh, not just of Russia, which we'll talk about later, but also about uh, Europe. I, I can see from your books that you know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, uh, I, that that the sequence that I wrote about Heidelberg is uh, on the street where I used to live, so in uh, other patriots and uh, traitors. Okay, well, th- there you go. You should know that street pretty well then. Right. Yeah, all that stuff is authentic, uh, except I moved some, some hotels around a little bit, but uh, generally speaking, that's the lay of the land. Okay. Now, for people who aren't familiar, uh, the, the what's the significance of that title, The Blood of Patriots and Traitors? Well, it's uh, it came to me kind of through uh, serendipity. I, was, uh, I didn't have a title for the book. I was just writing it and kind of thinking through where it was all going. And then I realized that there were a lot of patriots and a lot of traitors in the book. And then Thomas Jefferson's quote uh, popped into my head. It goes something like, um, the tree of freedom must be occasionally watered by the blood of uh, patriots and tyrants. And it seemed like the perfect uh, the perfect title for the book. So by little and away we went. There you go. Well, now, well, now this book is actually the second in the series uh, featuring... Uh, your character named Max Geller, and uh, so people know what's going on in book two. What what was book one about, basically? Uh, well, book one got started. I was working on another book. I was going to go sell another book to um, to a, a publisher, and uh, my friend came in and said, "Look, did you see this article?" And if you remember uh, back a few years, the big deal in the news was um, this uh, dossier that that uh, this English uh, spy had, had concocted on uh, President Trump. And so uh, the article that my friend brought me uh, was um, a reward, 
when a publisher had offered a, a $10 million reward if someone could prove the dossier true. And and that just clicked right in my head right away. And I said, boy, I wonder what, what the story would be like if someone actually took him up on that. And that's where they came from. I wrote that book in record time. It was like three months. Bang. Wow. So then uh, how long is the gap in writing between book one and book two? Was it, uh, again, three or four months, or did it take a year or two before you got into that? Uh, it took about a year. You know, you know, a lot of book publishing, the fun part is writing the book. After that, it's, uh, you know, publish, uh, publication and, um, and publicity. And so uh, that takes up a lot of time. And then I have a, I have a life, too, you know. You, you can't go down the rabbit hole with these things. I like to leave a balance, lead a balanced life. So I saw at the end of this book, The Blood of Patriots and Traitors, and again, before we get into it, but I saw at the very end, you were actually getting some feedback from uh, readers uh, wanting to know certain things. That may have helped prompt you to write book two. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, people, um, I was lucky. Um, fans would write to me and say, hey, uh, we want some more of these guys. And so, um, actually, I didn't, I didn't think of uh, Max uh, Geller as a series when I started out. But uh, people kept asking for more of the same. And so I said, okay, well, let me see uh, how I can slant this a little bit. And uh, the idea was there, uh, the, the, the outline for the book, kind of what was going to happen and so forth. And then uh, I just uh, put Max Keller in there and made a few changes, and off we went. Wow. Well, this, I, I, this apparently must tie up a, a few loose ends from book one. But how about if you give uh, the listeners out there a little bit of an overview on what book two is about, The Blood of Patriots and Traitors? Well, um, Max Geller is uh, being blackmailed by his former boss at the CIA to go to uh, Moscow and bring out a defector who has requested Max. And uh, since Max is a wanted man, because of the things he did in the first book, he's a wanted man in Russia, um, the big mystery is, is this defector real or is, defector, is the defector a trap? And so that's the first big mystery in the book. Well, Max goes to um, to um, Moscow, and not, it's not long before he's discovered by his old enemy, um, Colonel Zabluda, who's a Russian intelligence uh, operative, and has chased Max around in the first book. And so that uh, the, the recognition that Max is in um, in Moscow sits off a major manhunt. And uh, Zabluda is chasing Max all around Europe and, uh, and through the Mediterranean and across the um, Atlantic to uh, Washington, D.C., where there is a whiz-bang of a, of a, finale, a finale. I won't give, give it away. You know what happens. But uh, it's a, just a fun chase, and it goes to a lot of places that I thought people would find interesting and places that I had been, too. I, I'm wondering if, the, if this guy, Zabuda, has a career anymore. I mean, he, he's, he's, he seems to be on the trail, but never can get, get the, 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 what he's looking for. He never can trap him, you know? Well, Max Geller is a good spy. <laughs> he is able to uh, elude Zabuda, and there's been some, uh, some foul-ups on the part of the Russians. Mm-hmm. Yes, yep, I know. Well, that's interesting. And they make just like uh, other spy agencies do. And uh, Max has made a few, too, but he manages it. And he's got a crew that helps him out, too. 
uh, people liked his crew. And uh, that's the thing. Yeah, now it, tell me, this this begins on the shore <laughs> in Australia, and they're shooting up on the shore. There's killings. There's mur- does this happen in real life? Well, uh, let me let me just tell you that that setting is authentic. I was in Australia, and uh, I had written part of the book, and and it just came to me that that was the perfect setting. Uh, given what people had asked me about Max and his girlfriend, are they going to get together and so forth? And uh, in the first book, his girlfriend went to Australia. So I said, this is just perfect. The scene just came to me while I was on the beach. And, uh, yeah, well, does it happen in real life? Do these, uh, these, do these public killings go on? And as a rule, I would have to say no. Uh, I, am not, I do a lot of reading. But... There are occasions when spy agencies want to do things very publicly. And uh, the Russians uh, come to mind, first of all. They have killed um, one uh, traitor um, in England, uh, poisoned his, um, his tea with polonium. <laughs> the guy did that horrible death, but he had, he had defected from Russia to uh, England. And then there was another attempt recently on a, a, a defector and his daughter in England. So, and the Russians want to send a message, hey, if you uh, are a traitor to our cause, we're going to get you. Uh, the other spy agency that has done some things that are kind of public at times is the Mossad, uh, the Israeli Mossad. And uh, they, they were trying, especially during the 70s when terrorism was just rampant, uh, they were sending messages that if you, uh, if you do anything to Israelis, we're going to get you. And uh, they tracked down, if you remember the... Um, the uh, Black September movement that uh, conducted the, the uh, uh, Munich massacre. They massacred the, um, the Israelis athlete. Uh, they just tracked them down. And there's a whole book about that. I read that book. It's a fascinating one. And they also made a movie of it, too. Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the one where they had Jim McKay and Howard Cosell on the ground there doing uh, a lot of the actual reporting uh, during that situation. That was uh, fascinating how... They didn't have the news people there, but the sports people were doing the reporting. Yeah, it was, uh, but it was a major tragedy. And uh, but most of the time, just remember, spy agencies, uh, their motto is, uh, if we do it to you and you don't know about it, <laughs> that's the way that we've been successful. Right, right. That's that's very true. But like you said, Russia likes to send messages. And what I just this morning in the paper, I I saw a uh, I saw a report that apparently. The Ukraines had the audacity to possibly drop a bomb on some area in Russia. Well, how dare they do that? We can invade your country. We can blow it to smithereens, but don't you dare cross the border and do anything to us. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, the NATO is really concerned that that kind of activity uh, might spark uh, Putin to use a nuke or something. Uh, you know, if, if anybody guess what's going to happen with, with Putin and uh, what he's going to do. But, you know, you have to remember, too, he has he does have some sane generals, just like uh, any military. And I don't know if they're going to let him start a nuclear war just to save his ego. So I, That's the thing. I think his bigger, his bigger problem may be that guy from the Wagner Group, who uh, <laughs> he's not, not a happy man. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. So, and he has got 50 troops working for him, too. I know. It's amazing. 
Well, anyway, that's 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 a digression there, but it's an interesting thing because we have Russia so much here. And one of the things, let me tell you, that I really liked about your uh, book was that you actually used COVID as a plot point in the book. That was great. Well, I, I couldn't avoid it. You know, at first I thought, how am I going to handle this? You know, people can't just go running around uh, do a spying like uh, like there's no pandemic there. You know, the reader would say, hey, what, what happened to COVID? So I did use it. I tried to integrate it as best I could, and it seemed to work out very well. Oh, it did. And it certainly had Max Geller uh, believing what you wrote. Your your own character was, uh, yeah, he was certainly in, got got snookered by that one. But it's a very good plot point. And like I said, and that's one of the things I like when I when I read a book like yours. I've read some other books by uh, people, authors, that they use what's going on in real life as part of the book and as part of the plot. And that makes it so much more realistic. Kudos to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. I try to do that wherever I can. Yeah. I have one gentleman. I read his book. And he had his, all, all the time, his his private investigator was eating somewhere. I thought, what, we got to eat every day, but no one talks about it. So I enjoyed that, you know. <laughs> Max is an unlikely and reluctant hero, it seems to me. I don't think he wanted to go back to Russia, did he? Absolutely not. He did not want to go, but he uh, he went in, in place of his girlfriend. He was being black. Either she was going to go or have to go or he was going to go and and she didn't really have the training and the contacts that Max had, so uh, he did the brave thing and and he went to re- Russia. So, do you think that they were ever going to really send his girlfriend? Uh, that that was really in the back of their mind, or was this all just a ploy to get Max to go? Well, you have to ask Rodney about that. One. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask Rodney about that. That's the, the that's Max doesn't always tell me what he's thinking. No. He just says, <laughs> well. You know, the interesting thing is that going back, he got to meet and help some of the people who he, who were where he was supposed to bring out the first time. Is that not? Am I correct in that? Uh, not quite. Max met with the people that um, in the first book that he brought out in the second. But in the first book, he just uh, bought some information from from this uh, FSB guy, and then he told him that uh, the other information that he had, uh, he should go to the CIA with it in Moscow and see if they would bring him out. But Max was no longer with the CIA, so he didn't have the authority or the wherewithal to smuggle this guy out of... um... And so then he he tried to make up for it. What happened was when the the FSB guy tried to contact the CIA or did contact the CIA, Rodney kind of poo-pooed his information. And so the poor guy was left hanging out there, and so Max tried to make it right, and uh, and it made for for a great uh, adventure. It did. It oh, did. No. <laughs> it, uh, on the road from Moscow up towards Finland and everything. Were you in Russia? Did I mean you you write like you were right there? You know the roads and the exit and everything. Well, yeah, I have been to Russia, but you know, thank God we have the internet and all kinds of uh, travel guides. And uh, yeah, you can you can really make it authentic, and I try to. I try. To, I don't. I don't make up stuff if I can uh, find a way to get the, the authentic information. And I think you know, lots of times people who um, who read these books, um, they have been to these places, and uh, so you know, if they say, "Ah, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about," well, you've just lost a reader. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I found fascinating, and I guess this is true—I don't—I I, I assume it is. 
is the interagency spying over there. Like, here was the police spying on somebody, but there's a security service spying on the police. This, again, this is normal? Well, yeah, there's a lot of spying going on in Russia, especially now. <laughs> so the, the, the plot, I tried to make it sufficiently uh, complex. And this, this is normally what would happen. I mean, for, for instance, um, one, of, one of the uh, actors in the book was, uh, was an intel, a uh, Russian intel specialist. Well, normally, the counterintelligence uh, service in any spy agency will time to time check on its own spies to see if they're selling spirits or doing things they shouldn't be doing. So that's how that all came about. It wasn't, um, wasn't really made up. It, it was not far from, from reality. Wow. Well, I tell you, that was, uh, that was a wild ride up the uh, road to uh, try to get out of uh, Moscow, to get out of Russia, to get to one country, to get to another country. I'm telling you, it was, uh, it was something else. And yeah, now he had help. Your, your hero, Max Geller, had help from uh, some non-agency personnel. Okay, there was a lady who has a, uh, I guess, a protection. She's, a, she's one of Max's former colleagues. Right. The CIA. It, now, is this is this true? I mean, are there things that are there you know, entities that do things like this? Well, possibly. Yeah. Okay, that's a good answer. Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, you know, you have you have mercenaries uh, that do all kinds of things. That's true. Life. That's true. And so, so you have the added. Um, element of friendship between uh, the lady and Max and the other and the other characters who helped him out from the United States. So he seems to endear a lot of friends. I mean, it, everybody seems to like Max unless you're a uh, diametrically opposed to him. Everybody else likes the guy, you know? Well, he tries to do the right thing and he's good at his, at his uh, job. So one so of, just, one of the scenes that I liked the, a lot in your book was when he, went to some, I don't know if it was an acting school or a school, and he got some kid to come with him to pretend he was his son or something and just, just sit on the bench. Yeah, well, Max needed a cover to go make sure that he wasn't walking into a trap. And so that just kind of came to me. I said, well, you know, he just can't walk in because it might be a trap. He needs some kind of cover. And so, so well, it's a school, so he needs a child to go with him. And, uh, yeah, so that just kind of, you know, you just kind of follow a logic. And where do you get, where do you get um, a kid? Well, you go, you go to acting school. If you need a kid to pretend, you go to an acting school. So, yeah, that is an actual school. That's in Moscow. It's located in that, in that area that I described in the book. And Wow. You, again, the, the research and the knowledge you have of Russia and these sites are just fantastic. And, again, gives you the realism that you are right there with uh with max and uh that's that's really something uh really really like that now uh it seems like at the end of the book we're sewing things up with max geller but are we is there a book three coming scotty oh yeah um i have got uh, two two books working uh with max geller and it's just a matter of um the time I have to put in on it, which one I'm going to do first. That makes Max, me happy. <laughs> Max is, is going to be around if I have anything to do with it. Good. Well, I, he's a fascinating character. I like him a lot. And, and now because of what happened in book one, which I won't tell people about, but he's now independently wealthy. So he can sort of do what he wants to do 
uh, if he, yeah, well, unless he's being blackmailed into doing it, but uh, that's a neat plus twist too. Yeah, it was it was great fun to write both of them. Uh, like I say, the first one just flowed out of me. The second one I had to give a little bit more thought to, but once that got going, it just flows. You know, you just follow the logic. What what's got to come next, and uh, and just go with the flow. That's the way I do it. So now, when you start your book, do you have a, a basic outline of where you want to go? Do you know what 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 we're doing here, or is that? Coming as you're doing day after day, is that filling things in or actually expanding on your uh, initial plot outline? Well, I don't. I don't do an outline. Uh, I think that the book that I'm working on now is the first time that I sat down and tried to um, lay out the major major uh, elements of the plot. Where's it going? How's it getting there? And so forth, just in very broad terms. But. Um, my very first book, which is the um, the Iran contradiction, I just started out with the with the end game. Okay. <laughs> the, the end kind of came to me, and then I I uh, I wrote it. Now um, I don't I don't outline per se. I I kind of do sometimes I do partial outlines, and then I let um, you know I'll wake up with a scene in my head. I'll just get up and write it. And then that will lead me. Sometimes it, it leads you in a straight line. Sometimes it say, "Oh, wait a minute, there's something else here," and you go off down the road. I remember um, I was reading about an author, and uh, he said that he was writing this um, this uh, chase, and it was in the Texas, and it was way out in the middle of nowhere, and um, the bad guys are chasing the good guys down the road, and the road, well, it's, it's going into the vanishing point. <laughs> he said, "Well, wait a minute, something's got to happen here." So you have the guy take a right turn, and there's a hidden military base out out in the middle of nowhere. So, in the, <laughs> so that's the way it happens sometimes. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of middle of nowhere out in West Texas. <laughs> I remember driving out, my son at one time thought out at New Tep, Texas, El Paso, and we were driving out there, and you get to around I have Van Horn or Van Dyke, something where you go from, I guess you go from central time to uh, mountain time and nothing works everything is it keeps shifting you to pacific time to eastern time i mean you have no idea where you're at and except it's all brown that's all i can tell you it's awfully brown out there <laughs> well i will tell you in in the blood of patriots and traitors uh i didn't i didn't plan initially on using the fsb uh, couple and their baby but when when i was looking at max trying to get out of moscow I said, okay, he's got to drive for a long way. He can't stay awake, and it's and it's freezing, so he can't stop, and he can't drive all uh, nonstop. So what's got to happen? He's got to have some help. Well, who would help him? And then, it, you know, the brain just started going back into the dusty files and said, okay, oh yeah, there's a the couple that uh, that he wanted to help before. That's one. Do it. That's great. Now, you you said you've uh, lived in Europe for over twenty years. Uh, You've been all over. Uh, of course, you 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 avoided my wife's home country of Romania. Good for you. And uh, but do you have any favorite countries over there? Any place you like more than the other? Well, I lived uh, for uh, all of that time in Germany. Although I traveled all over, and I love Germany. I know it, um, and I got very comfortable with it. And um, I just like the place. If I had another another place uh, to live. I think it would probably be Rome because I love the food. <laughs> I love Italian food. Who doesn't? There you go. Good. 
So I, as an Italian, I'm glad to hear you say that. That's, uh, yeah, I, 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 we, you know, love, love going back to the old country. Uh, even though my dad was born there, I, I didn't make it. I was almost 50, but I've been back a lot of times. And I really knew what you mean about the food and the people and the whole place. I absolutely love it. But Germany was a good place for you. That's good. I'm glad you, glad you like that. Uh, and it's centrally located. So you could get to every place, you know, you get to North, North Sea or you could get to Mediterranean with just a train ride in no time. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> And we can't do anything here in America with our trains. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a shame when you ride a train in Europe and compare it to the United States. You just say we got to do better than that. You know. Yeah, people don't realize there's a first class in trains, and you get there and they'll come back. Oh, here you have food. Oh, really? The first time I took that train in Italy, like that. Whoa, this is pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, the same same way when I uh, my first train ride was uh, I got to uh, to Germany. And um, my first time, and I was really burned out. And so uh, I had 30 days leave, and I asked a friend, where should I go? And he said, well, uh, go to Mallorca. It's uh, warm down there. And uh, I said, great. It was, it was May, and it was kind of uh, cold in Germany. So um, I, I jumped on the train, and I, I wrote, and I said, hey, this is uptown. This is all right. And I wasn't even in first class. Yeah, see, that's very good. Well, that's great. Oh, my. So anyway, from what I'm gathering here, you don't have a particularly set schedule when it comes to writing. Uh, you don't like some people write every day. That's not quite what you do. No, and uh, that's that's because I kind of um, I want to have a balanced life. I don't want to, I don't want the writing uh, to make me a slave. And so I don't write every day. I kind of write. Now here's the way I write. I get inspiration. Like I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll have a scene and I'll start writing. Now, once once those scenes start to become a book, then I'm compulsive. I can go day and night, not eat, not shave, nothing. You know, I just want to get 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 the thing done, and not not in a bad way, but because it's it's got my juices flowing. Right, right. Well, I tell you, it's worked, my friend. It's working, Scotty. I like them. I like the books. Uh, you did very well. I'm looking forward to more of the uh, Max Geller series. And I'm going to tell you what, when you have book three or four, whatever, we're going to have you back again for more. You you put them out, we'll keep bringing you back on to talk about them. How's that? Okay, let me say one thing before you go. You asked me uh, what, what made me become a writer. That's right. I was in grad school, and um, I had a lot of credit, so I had a lot of time on my hands. My first week I went out, I bought five books, and uh, the only one I really enjoyed was um, Firefox by Craig Thomas. The rest of them were really bad, and I was sitting there next to my fireplace, and I remember saying out loud, you mean people get paid for writing this junk? I can write better than that. And my my guardian angel said, yeah, well, where's your book? And so I started writing. That's how I got into the writing business. <laughs> my wife has wanted me to write a book for a long time. I get started, and uh, my guardian angel says, slow down, do a podcast, and said it's easier. So, uh... Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Podcast that you're not a writer. Yeah, okay. I try. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my damnedest to get there, but it's uh, slow, slow moving for me. I tell you. Anyway, well, go ahead. Writing, writing. I think is something that you have to do. Like you're going to be a writer if it's what you must do. When you wake up in the morning, uh, you say, "I've got to get this down on paper." That's that's a good indicator, and that's what I when I speak at schools or whatever. When I used to, I don't do it anymore. No, that's okay. Well, anyway, hey, listen, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I've had a wonderful time chatting with you, Scotty. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me, Blaine.
Very good. And again, friends, the title of the book, The Blood of Patriots and Traitors, it's on sale now. The author, James A. Scott. But if you see him, just call him Scotty, okay? Thanks so much. There, we'll there be is back. a sale. There is the, a sale. The, special sale for the Kindle. Special sale on the Kindle. You can't beat that. All right. Very good. Hey, Scotty, thanks so much. We'll come back in just a moment, friends. And again, thanks so very much to James for coming on. I really appreciate his uh, his candor and his discussion of this book. I, again, it's a standalone book. It's part of a series. I think you're going to really enjoy it. If you like that action, thriller, adventure stuff, this is for you. And he's done wonderful research. He has great knowledge. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy that book. Now, what am I looking at? Well, it's been a, you know, I want to get back to my foreign TV shows, but I can't. I got, I can't again this week. I'll tell you why, because I'm looking at something and it's just, you know, got to talk about it. What am I going to talk about? Electricity. That's right. Electricity. You never know what you're going to hear coming out of my mouth. But this week I'm looking at electricity because a lot's going on with electricity. Now you have heard our government, you've heard our leaders and the leaders over in other countries saying we must become you know, energy efficient, we must get rid of the fossil fuels, and we want to have electric energy, blah, 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 blah. Okay, whether you're in favor of that or not, this doesn't really matter. Because what I'm looking at is what's going on with this electricity. Now, it begins with my dear friend Greta. Now, Greta Thunberg from Sweden, who I always used to refer to as Greta, Greta, Greta. She is out the other day. And where is she? She's in Norway. Now, what is Greta doing in Norway? Now, you know she's a social activist for, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels. She is protesting wind turbines. That's right. The very thing which is going to produce electricity, she is protesting them. Now, why is that? Well, she has associated herself with a group of looks like around 14 indigenous people from the uh, Lapland region in northern Norway. They're called the Sami, S-A-M-I, and the indigenous people. They don't want these wind turbines on their land, but they had been built there. And now she wants them taken off their land, and she wants to have no more built on their land because it's their land, and it's their I don't know, protected areas, their sacred ground, you know. Okay, do you want it on your sacred ground? I don't know. Like I said, she want, does not want it up there any longer, so she's protesting against wind turbines. The last thing you would have thought my dear friend Greta, Greta, Greta would be doing, but she's up there doing it. But that's not the only place I'm looking about electricity. I'm looking off New Jersey and the coast, of, you know, the, of the mid-Atlantic coast. And what am I seeing? Beached whales. That's right, beached whales. Have you seen this? Why are we talking about beached whales? Because, because now the environmentalists are telling us that these wind turbines, which produce electricity, which they all want, are interfering with the whales. Not only interfering with the whales, they are killing them. They think that this elect these wind turbines are actually starting to kill off these whales. There have been like 25 or 30 beachings of whales, which never happened before, and the only correlation they can come up with is wind turbines uh, or the construction of them out there. So they want that stopped. Okay, now here we go again. You want, you want electricity, you want solar, you want wind, but don't do it there. Nay, nay, don't do it in my backyard. 
put it in your backyard. You know, there are trade-offs we have to have here. If you want all electric, you got to realize there are trade-offs because the bottom line is that the, the, the scientists have done the numbers. You cannot, you cannot energize the whole world with electricity. It's impossible. But nonetheless, you're going to have to start somehow. And so where they have started up in Lapland and off the Atlantic coast, this is causing environmental problems, which apparently they think supersede our need for electricity. Uh, now, I want you to couple that with my third story in electricity. A report came out here the other day, published in the Wall Street Journal and picked up by other, other outlets. We don't have enough electricians. That's right. We have 700,000 licensed electricians here in the United States, and we are massively short of them. We can produce all the electricity we want, but we don't have the electricians to install everything. People want these new updated heat pumps and, and et cetera. Seven-month wait. Why? Don't have enough electricians. The power grid has to be improved. We don't have enough electricians. We need around two to three times as many electricians as we currently have just here in the United States in order to get the electricity grid set up properly. It's not here. So I don't know what the answer is. But, you know, the theory and the reality are two different things. Yes, do we want to have clean energy? Yes, do we like to have this electric energy? Yes, what are we going to do? We're going to build wind turbines. Nope. The reality is we don't like them up in Lapland. We don't like them in the Sami grounds. We don't like them out in the Atlantic Ocean. You know, we don't, even if we have it, we don't have the electricians. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry, don't they? Yep, it does. And I'm looking at that this week with the subject of electricity. Just never know what's going to pop into my eyes any week. And this is a good one that I'm looking at. So anyway. This is the end of another episode. I want to thank you. Hey, on the Greenville Podcast Company, let me tell you something, folks. They are growing by leaps and bounds. You know, they have main offices here in Greenville, South Carolina. We also have a branch office now out in Denver, Colorado, and another one coming in the near future to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. We're getting calls. Not we. They are getting calls from people in California, people in Florida, people all over the country who want to do podcasts. So if you want to do a podcast, get in touch with the people at the Greenville Podcast Company. And so on behalf of the Greenville Podcast Company, on behalf of ViewsOnBooks.com, this is your host, Blaine DeSantis, for Books and Looks, saying, may all your leaves be pages in a book. <laughs>